welcome to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast for the charity myelopathy.org. And after a slight hiatus due to the global pandemic, we're back talking all things cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Michelle Starkey. I'm a scientist and the director of myelopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist and founder of myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. So quite different times that uh, we're recording this podcast in. Yes, definitely. Normally we're sat next to one another, uh, recording this in one room, and now we're in multiple rooms uh, spread across the country. All very strange, but slowly getting back to normality. Yeah, I think that's um, one of the lessons, isn't it? Trying to find a way to to continue despite the you know complete upheaval on everyone's everyone's lives. But I think we're all getting quite used to this now, aren't we? We're all quite used to Zoom and you know various. Um, things that are entering into our home life that wouldn't normally uh, be doing work at home. <laughs> no, I think that's right. But I think, of course, you know, there are people, you know, people are being affected in different ways by this. And, you know, there is some slight logistical upheavals for ourselves, perhaps with, you know, homeschooling and, and, the, and the move to sort of remote working. But I noticed that uh, email that came from the Neurological Alliance last week. They'd done a survey looking at people with neurological diseases and how the reduced access to healthcare was affecting their lives. And it showed that 97% of people in that survey reported delays in accessing treatment because of the restrictions uh, placed on healthcare providers by, by COVID. I think one of the other things uh, that probably relates to that is that, you know, just this fear that's been going around. People aren't really sure whether they're, you know, at risk. In particular, you know, we had this discussion at the beginning with people suffering with cervical myelopathy. You know, are they at greater risk? Should should they be avoiding these meetings or should they carry on seeing, you know, their medical doctors? I think, you know, and we still don't know a huge amount about all of this. So I think that's affected a lot of people's behaviour, hasn't it? I think that's right. I mean, that, that shielding statement was quite quite vague and we tried to sort of add some um, help with that. But I think we may we may have made things a bit worse with the flurry of emails that, that came through. But, you know, I think the government advice has obviously changed over time as they've become more informed about, about how the disease behaves. But in the very first instance, it was really down to the premise that, that people with neurological conditions like myelopathy are at an increased risk of a particularly respiratory viral illnesses like flu and coronavirus. And I think that's particularly worrying, you know, from our side uh, as a charity, because obviously we know that people are facing huge delays anyway with their diagnoses and, and getting the help they need. So, you know, something like this sort of puts even more barriers in the way of that. Mm. Now, we've certainly had a lot of emails about, you know, how how access to treatment is working in, in the current climate. And I think, you know, Sadly, there isn't a clear message or a clear answer for everyone in, in the country. And um, do feel free to continue to email us and we'll try to provide the um, best advice for your individual situation. But I think the, you know, the situation is, is, is certainly, certainly tricky. And, and then going back to the advice around, around shielding and, and, and being more susceptible, I think one of the interesting questions that I was discussing with the, the research team is, um, you know, I think coronavirus has obviously shed a lot of light on the importance of vaccination and, and, and prevention against these sorts of infections. But the flu vac vaccine, which obviously is provided annually uh, and would be eligible to people with myelopathy, I just wonder what the uptake is there, because we know that the awareness is quite 
quite low uh, in, in in sort of non-specialist professions. And the the invite to that flu vaccination program is largely based on on the coding, which is also terrible for myelopathy. And I would imagine it's really down to the individuals to put their hand up and say, I need that vaccine. Otherwise, they probably don't get it. Yes, and I'm sure this will become the case again, you know, if and when we get a vaccine for for COVID. I'm sure now that this is in the forefront of all of our, our brains and it's affected us so much, um, I imagine people will be asking these questions much more than perhaps they would have done before with the, you know, the more general flu vaccine. I think that's right. And I mean, I guess we'd, we we welcome anyone's experience in in, in this area, and, and it's perhaps something that we should we should look at and try and provide some some guidance on. As in, in due course, you know, hopefully a vaccine is going to come about, and um, that's going to be important for for this community. I wonder how they'll roll that out as well, because of course, you know, there's going to be so many people that feel that they're, you know, they should be getting it first. And I wonder how on earth that's going to be organised. Like you say, you know, I'm sure we'll be needing to think about how we advise our people, but everybody else will be doing that as well. So yeah, they will be. I think there's lots of lots of unanswered questions, isn't there? But I think the, the first goal is certainly getting getting a vaccine. Um well, do let us know if there's anything that we can help with uh, in terms of uh, myelopathy and, and treatment access in, in this period of time. But perhaps we should talk about some more positive things and some progress the, the charity has been able to make in, in the last few months. Good idea. I think, you know, when you were saying about work, different working environments and how weird it's been, I think as the charity, we actually haven't suffered too greatly in that respect because we were all working remotely anyway. We were quite used to that. And, you know, we don't have any, um, we're not renting any property and we're all volunteers. So for us, it has essentially been business as normal around lots of homeschooling and all the rest of it. So we have made some progress, which is fantastic. We have. And um, I know on a sort of um, on a specifically charity front, you've been working very hard trying to overhaul the website, which is really our front door of this, of this charity, isn't it? Yes, we've been working very hard with uh, one of our new trustees, Carol, and also Liz Roberts, who has helped us with this podcast series, um, to update the website. There's a huge amount of information on our website, but we felt that it wasn't really being presented in a way that it was easy to follow. So there's been a huge amount of work going into that, looking at the different sections of the website, deciding if things are in the correct place, um, sort of updating that, um, thinking about different images that we can add to sort of make um, the information a bit more interesting. And yeah, I've done this once before for the charity. It's a really huge task. Uh, but every time we look through it, we just realise how much information there really is on there. Uh, and it's great. No, I think it's a um, really, really important task you're undertaking. I think the the website itself really evolved a bit as a sort of rabbit warren. You know, one thing went up, then went another one, and it sort of span out in all directions. And I think it, it lost a bit of structure and and it became much harder to find the information that was necessary. So I think a real cleanup and a focus of what's needed is, is going to be really helpful. And of course, you've also started to put together something more for a professional audience, which is obviously also an important target in terms of raising awareness and, uh, and, and improving care. Exactly. At the moment, the charity's income is very small. So we're trying to focus on things that we can do on a very small budget. And this is something that just kept coming through often, very often from the support group, this sort of lack of awareness within the medical profession as well. So we had chalked this up as something we wanted to to work on and um, 
you, Ben, and as well as some of your colleagues put together a document for us, which we've taken sections from um, to add to our professional uh, part, which we've, we haven't had on the website before. So I'm hoping this is now going to be interesting for, yes, the medical profession. There'll be more medical related information on there. Um, obviously, we're not stopping anybody else from looking at it, but it will be more targeted towards professionals and and using the type of language and the information that they might be interested in with full references etc so i'm excited about that um because you know as long as we make sure people know it's there i'm hoping that this might start to make a difference um within the profession and help to raise awareness of the condition Mm, excellent and um i mean hopefully some of the parallel um successes for the charity in terms of that professional space might might help because of course we did manage to release the top research priorities, which myelopathy.org has been involved working with AO Spine to establish. And that took around three and a half thousand different research ideas from a community of almost 500 different people made up of both people living with the disease, but also healthcare professionals from 68 different countries. And that's been distilled down into a, a list of what are the top questions that need to be answered in order to improve the lives of people living with the disease. Yes, and really nice, because I think in the last uh, podcast, the last time we were chatting, you were sort of hinting that you knew the answers uh, to this, but we hadn't heard them yet. So it's nice that that's finally out in the open and we can see you know, all the work that you did and, and what was selected. And we agree with you. <laughs> that's good. That's good news. I mean, it was a slight shame. We were trying to sort of ramp up the suspense in order to really sort of launch it um, in a big, you know, as much publicity as possible, because that's obviously important for getting these sorts of things answered. Now, we had to slightly change our plans with the um, the coronavirus, but we did have a webinar and it had good attendance and got lots of plans, including um, a special edition of this podcast series to try and reach as broad an audience as possible because you know, engaging the research community and people who fund research is going to be really key to getting those questions answered. But uh, it was interesting that the, and the top top priority, and you can, you can find out more from the aospine.org forward slash recode website, or indeed they will appear on myelopathy.org in due course, the top research priority was improving awareness, which I think uh, would resonate with many people uh, in, in the myelopathy.org community. And is really the reason why the charity's here. So, you know, excellent from our perspective as well, but huge amounts of work to be done. So, you know, it's all well and good coming out with these priorities, but now the really hard work starts sort of working through those and, and how to approach them. It does. And perhaps that's a good link into what really is the focus of today's podcast which is an opportunity really to introduce a bit of the detail behind the charity itself how it operates and and what its vision is because it has been fed back to us that perhaps there is a bit of um, uncertainty about how myelopathy.org runs and operates and, and what it's trying to do and um, I know you Michelle took an opportunity at the last trustee meeting to sort of corner a couple of the trustees and pin them down to answer some of the community's questions. Yes, that's right. So earlier this year, just before our trustee meeting, um, I took the opportunity to speak to two of our trustees and ask them a few questions. Uh, the first of those is Julia Carter. Julia has been involved with the charity right from the beginning. Uh, she helped us register the charity with the Charity Commission, and she was integral to the launch that we did um, last summer. 
And then Helen joined the team around about the time we launched uh, in May last year. Her background um, is as a lawyer um, and she's been helping the charity from that perspective, as well as from her experience with fundraising and also uh, through her sort of interest in the sort of governance of how charities work. I caught up with Julia and Helen earlier in the year, just before our trustee meeting to ask them a few questions. Hello everyone, I'm joined by Lady Julia Carter, who is a person with cervical myelopathy, as well as a trustee of myelopathy.org, and Helen Wood, who is a trustee of the charity. Welcome, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak to us. Uh, we're very grateful. Uh, as you know, some of our support group have submitted some questions that they would like to ask the trustees. Um, so it's my job to put those questions to you now. So we thought ahead of our February trustee meeting, which we're about to have, um, it would be very nice to introduce all of the trustees to our community um, to try and offer them a little bit of insight into the role of the trustees and your vision for myelopathy.org moving forward. Um, so first um, is most important, um, how did you both come to be involved with myelopathy.org? Helen. Shall I go first? You go first, yeah. I became involved by accident really. Um, I met uh, our founder Ben's mother um, at a Christmas drinks party and I just finished, was just finishing a master's in medical ethics and law and I have a background as a solicitor and also working for charities in the UK and Japan and she said I sounded exactly what his son needed for his new charity. So I then met up with Julia Michelle and Ben and discussed what my role could be. Um, I had a background in the charity world of fundraising, which was something that the charity was interested in pursuing, obviously. Um, so that's how I got involved. And just a quick side question. Had you ever heard of myelopathy before? I had never heard of myelopathy. I had absolutely no idea what it was, which I think is perhaps part of the problem and what we're trying to address. Yes, and I have to admit that I hadn't heard of it either when I got involved. So and you are a bit of an expert compared with the rest of us. <laughs> Slowly becoming. <laughs> and Julia, how did um, you get involved with? The I got involved as a patient, really. Um, Mark, who's the other founder of Myelopathy.org, is my consultant. And um, after he diagnosed me, and um, I. I have regular sessions with him about twice a year to check on the condition. He mentioned the organisation and asked me if I'd be interested in joining. And obviously I said yes. Um, what's quite interesting is I don't have, I do have, I expect, like Helen, I do have some voluntary sector um, background because I have been involved um, as a trustee of charities before. Um, but I've also got um, um, some of a research background from work that I did in the academic world, not on science or medical things. But I do find it very interesting um, um, to be able to bring those sort of skills into this sort of environment. So it's a good learning experience and I hope I've got something to give as well. I think we all come from different areas. So I think that's what's really nice. I'm not a trustee, but um, all the trustees have sort of slightly different areas of expertise and all of which we, you know, need in the charity and, and sort of this group of experts is, is really great in guiding me and us through, you know, this, this water that we find ourselves in now. I think that's very true. I thought I was coming in with my fundraising background, but I've also discovered that my legal background has also been very helpful as contracts arise 
people have various legal questions and I can turn my hand to that as well. Definitely. <laughs> the next question, well, next series of questions really are more, much more practical. It's more about exactly how we work. So the first question being, what's the structure of the charity and how do we operate? What is the role of a trustee within the charity? Um, and why do you both think that you're suited to being trustees? So the structure of the charity at the moment, we're at very early stages. So you could um, compare it to a startup of a business, essentially. So the trustees of the charity are also very involved in the running of the charity, which is very normal at the beginning of the life of a charity, maybe less so as a charity becomes more established. So we have Michelle, who is the CEO of the charity. So she's not a trustee, but she is the executive that runs the charity on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and then we have Ewan, who is also not a trustee, but a founder. And his very specific role is to run the support group. Um, we then also have um, the trustees that have different roles within that. I can speak for myself. I am a trustee, but with specific responsibility for fundraising so at the moment that's involving producing a fundraising strategy for the charity so we can work out where we can um, access money for the charity going forward so whether that be through various trusts and foundations through our community through corporate con um, connections um, and the like um, so that's my role as a trustee um, as well as the oversight of the of the charity as a whole and the oversight of the charity is determined really by the charity commission if you set up as a charity and you want to be able to ask the public for money which is essentially what you're doing then you've got to abide by various conditions of the charity commission and the trustees are there to make sure that you do um, it sounds very complicated, but if you actually think about it, um, it's obvious that we need somebody to make sure that um, everything that happens is run scrupulously. Uh, there's absolutely no suggestion that it wouldn't be, but um, if you're taking public funds and also if you're applying for grants from um, grant-making bodies, they will also um, expect that, that there is a board that makes sure that the money they allocate is spent fairly on what they believe that they've given it to us to do. Um, so that's the general duty of the trustees. We meet four times a year, four times a year, but we have quite a few um, contact sessions um, which aren't formal meetings as well as that. Um, and I expect I would see my role um, partly um, to represent the um, those with the condition on the board of trustees. So one of the things, uh, so we asked our support group on Facebook, whether they had questions for you and one of the questions that came up was have either of you ever visited the support page oh yes i visit it quite regularly um i find it quite depressing um and i must say i find it quite difficult to visit it but i do admire enormously the um positive tone the welcoming and the um well just the fabulous work that's going on there um and i really take my hat off to the um well to you and who founded it but also um to everybody that keeps it going with these wonderful warm welcomes when people join up and when they've got to have an operation and, and lots of advice and so on it is a very very warm i think very warm very friendly atmosphere 
I think this is something we have been told before. Um, the very nature of the support group is that people tend to join at just as they've received their diagnosis mm. and as they're facing um you know, surgery ahead of them. So they're very scared. Um, and then often it's the case that it's the same questions being asked all the time. So mm -hmm. if you're in the group for a long time, of course, you have to face, you know, people's anguish and, and fear a lot. Um, but on the flip side, like you say, um, it's such a great resource for people and a support for people um, because, you know, there they have thousands of people actually mm -hmm. um, that have been through what they've been through, survived, um, and they can give them lots of advice and tips about how to how to prepare themselves and, and get through. I mean, I've also found that the more, more mundane, more practical tips are really useful as well. Um, things like what do you do about shoelaces? And you get a wave of people telling you all about what you can do about shoelaces, which become quite a problem when you can, can't really bend very well and your feet are very stiff and so on. So, I mean, it's invaluable for both the big and the small issues, I think. Definitely. So, um, great opportunity to corner corner Julia and Helen and, and put some put some questions to them. I think it can be quite difficult for somebody on the outside necessarily to see how this organisation fits together and, and runs on a day to day basis, which essentially is on a shoestring budget and and lots of goodwill and time given up by you know volunteers. Yes, exactly. And I think they touch on that in their um, questions, the answers to their questions about the fact that it is a very small charity. So it works a little bit differently, perhaps to the larger charities that people might be more familiar with. We are in contact with each other all the time via WhatsApp and um, asking questions and finding out the best way of, of attacking various problems. So it really is a, a group effort. It does. And I think everyone's time, you know, ebbs and flows. And sometimes they've got a lot of time they can give and sometimes it goes a bit thin, doesn't it? But I guess for clarity, the sort of running structures that we've got, Michelle at the heart of the organisation, we've got myself, Carol, Ewan sort of inputting on a fairly frequent basis. And Ewan obviously supported by all of those volunteers. Uh, I've got Ollie looking after the Student Society. We've then got the Scientific Advisory Board, which is fairly new and trying to inform a little bit about the research and the science on, on the platform. And, and we're delighted that Dr. Uh, Michael Failings, who we'll hear from in the next month's podcast, uh, has uh, agreed to be the chair of, of, of that board. And then there's the trustees who are all on top of that, providing the sort of legal oversight and, and where possible contributing their own expertise. And of course, that includes Mark uh, Cotter, who's who's one of the charity's founders, but also um, Julia, Helen, and, um, and and others. Yes, exactly. And I think we're now building up a nice team of trustees that all have slightly different expertise that we can draw on, uh, which is fantastic at our level where we can't really employ anyone yet. So to have them involved and, and giving us their time has been fantastic, really. And I have to say, Michelle's very good at cornering people and getting the getting time out of them. I know that you've you've managed to strike up a really great relationship with Dr. Rory Murphy from uh, the USA, and he's been able to help uh, with some of the professional content and particularly some of the media for the professional content, which is going to be look great on the website. Yes, definitely. He's been really, really helpful. He got in touch with us through the website and said that he was using uh, the website with his um patients and, and people he was diagnosing and through that uh, we've met his illustrators and, and now they're helping us to produce some handouts that we can give to people at various different stages of their diagnosis so that's been brilliant. I think despite um, 
you know the very small budget and the and the and the, and the small origins of this charity we've had some had some big achievements and obviously got some some big visions and i and i know you you put exactly those questions from the community to um to helen and julia so moving on slightly um one of the things we would like to know is what do you think uh, the charity's biggest achievements are to date? I think the website is an enormous benefit for people as a resource. And to have produced a website um, like the one that Myelopathy has produced on a shoestring budget is quite incredible. I think we give the impression um, from that and from the support group that we are a much bigger organisation than perhaps um, people realise and that we are mostly all volunteers giving our time to the charity and producing the content and the technical side of that. Um, so I think the resource we have already produced is in, is incredible. Yes, I'd second that. And, but also I think the support group is another of the great things we should be very proud of um, to have got that sort of... Um, Patient involvement, I think, is a terrific achievement. We shouldn't belittle that one either. No, exactly. And I think, I mean, the main sort of idea of the charity is to raise awareness. And these are two routes that are very good for doing that. And, you know, we've spoken before on the podcast that we've been putting a lot of effort into the website. And it's still a lot of effort to make sure that it's current and relevant. And it's got the information on there that people need presented in a way that they can find. And, exactly. you know, that we're putting new content on there that will bring people back. And um, it's a work in progress. But yes, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's a fantastic resource, um, which has been done on a shoestring, essentially. And I, yeah, I'd agree with Julia that the support group that's what we're all about. It's making life better for people who have myelopathy. And if the support group can play a part in that, then that's crucial to who we are as a charity. Yeah, so I think the next question leading on from that are, what do you think our key challenges are or our priorities moving forward um, now? Um, I think one of our key challenges is to produce um, resources for people with myelopathy so that they can have access to timely diagnosis, appropriate treatment and information for how to deal with the condition once they have been diagnosed. And to do this, we need to produce information. We would ideally like to produce an information pack that somebody would receive on a diagnosis of myelopathy with this information in it. But to produce such a pack that we would hand to someone either digitally or in hard copy, um, we need funds to pilot that, to produce it, to roll it out across the NHS network. So we need to raise funds for that type of thing to take us to the next step. And this is really something the support group were telling us would be really important because when you get your diagnosis, you're sent home with very little information um, and so something like this that would put it in plain language and give you some advice and point you in the direction of where to get some support, I think would be really well received. So we like to ask our support network to help us with this task. And so I think it'd be really important if um, our supporters, both um, people with myelopathy, but also involving their family, their friends, their own networks, can help us uh, to achieve this goal. So that can be by buying merchandise from the site, um, having a cake sale, a coffee morning, 
having somebody run the marathon in aid of myelopathy, do a bike ride, um, any type of fundraising idea that you have, we would love for you to get involved um, and do it for myelopathy.org um, and raise you know, the needed funds so that we can roll out um, this support pack. And at the same time, raise awareness. I think um, we need to raise awareness in the medical profession, but also in people like um, physiotherapists, um, osteopaths. Um, in my own um, case, I wouldn't never have gone to a GP with my symptoms. They're much too vague. But I did go to an osteopath, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. And so I think there are lots of people that we need to educate. Um, and we also, I think, don't yet know enough about what the symptoms are. And I think that's where the sufferers or patients or whatever we're called um, have really got a very key role to play. Because it's probably, uh, I think, probably a condition which is different in each individual. And so it will take a time to work out what the conditions are, but we will find some commonalities, I think. And um, once we've got those, then I think, first of all, we'll feel much more reassured as patients because we're no longer in the dark. We know we've got something and why. We can also rule out that it's something else because very often the medical profession will tell you that you're suffering from something completely different and you'll go down a completely false route, which takes a lot of time. So I think there is that, um, firstly, that we're raising awareness, but secondly, pushing ahead with what we don't know yet and what we can discover from ourselves about what the condition is, what happens in the future and what we can expect. Uh, so one person that we mentioned an awful lot on our podcast, but we haven't actually spoken to yet is Ewan. Uh, he's the other founder of the charity and he runs um, the Facebook support group. Uh, recently, I was chatting to him and he said that these objectives and achievements that the charity says uh, they want to do and achieve often can feel very far removed from the people actually suffering with myelopathy, the people in the support group. Um and so really, he was saying, we need to find a way of making sure that we can um, translate these um, into a direct benefit to these people. And so one question that came out of that is um, this time, round about this time last year, a few months, um, we launched at the House of Lords. What um, do you think the main outcome of that launch was, such a high profile launch? What do you think? Shall I go first with that that. one? Um, I think it did raise awareness. I think it raised awareness within the medical profession and other professions associated with medicine. Um, And I think that was probably what it set out to do. And I think it did achieve that. Yeah. And we had some very heartfelt um, messages, didn't we, from people suffering with cervical myelopathy. We did. Talking about, you know, what the condition is. And there were a lot of people in that room that didn't really know, um, you know, what it was and what the impact Mm. was on people's lives, I think. Mm. I think you're right. I I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think it reached that audience very effectively that evening. And so I think an evening like that can give hope to people with myelopathy that we are talking to the policymakers, the medics, Mm. the researchers who um, will have an impact on how this condition is, is treated within the NHS. Okay, and so the final question being, um, how would someone listening uh, get involved if they wanted to? I think at the moment what they would do if they are um, somebody who thinks they may have myelopathy or have just received a diagnosis of myelopathy, the best place is to go to the support group and get um, get in contact via that for whatever support they need. Um, 
if they would like to get involved in raising money, go to our website. We have a page on our website that will tell you how to do that and how to get in touch with us um, in relation to that. Um, if you want to get involved in a different capacity, then again, go to our website, see our, um, find our email address and um, drop us a line and we'd um, be delighted to hear from you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Julia and Helen. That was thank really you, interesting. Thank you. thank you very much. So I think it was it was really really great to hear those different perspectives from from Julia and Helen. Obviously, Julian has that sort of real intimate knowledge of of the disease, living living with the condition and having undergone gone treatment. And then Helen's coming at it from a more um, from a, from an outside perspective, isn't she? But I think. Now, together, those ingredients are all coming together to really help drive this charity forward. And, and I think that really reflects what I think our biggest achievement is, which is the fact that we really are a sum of all of our parts with all the different expertise and skills coming together to try and you know, make a difference. And uh, hopefully some of our achievements to date show that and, and, and hopefully those to come will, will also. Yeah, I think it's really crucial, actually, that people are coming with all these different um, sort of skills skill sets it really does help us get some of these questions and and various tasks that we have done because people are coming at it from different angles different stages of their career in different experiences like julia you know has the lived experience of the condition and, and really helps us in that respect by sort of reminding us to remember certain things at certain times so yeah it's been a massive learning curve for me but i've really enjoyed it coming back to that point i think there is you know, ample opportunity for people who are interested and, and, and want to try and contribute or, or have a role in, in, in some aspect as, as Helen outlines in that interview. I mean, you know, we, um, we really are looking for keen and, and great people to try and help um, raise awareness and, and fundamentally change, change the lives of people living with myelopathy now and in the future. Absolutely. And I think Helen refers to it a few times um, about raising money specifically and sort of fundraising um, events that people might want to hold, um, giving a few suggestions of what people might want to do. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's always a bit of a dirty subject, isn't it? Money, but it, it unfortunately it makes, it makes the world go round. I was um, doing a little bit of digging into trying to sort of um, promote some research funding into, um, into myelopathy. And there's a platform called dimensions um, they're a company but they um they seem to have a, a database of, of research funding that, that's gone on and what's it's been spent on and just running a very simple search it looks like myelopathy has received since 2011 three percent of the research investment that say motor neuron disease that traumatic spinal cord injury or that multiple sclerosis have received independently and i think that that gap that you know lack of financial resources which is prevalent throughout myelopathy is, is something that really needs to change and, and it comes from from charities raising funding but also trying to engage you know other grants and bodies to, to come and support this cause as well but it's also the raising awareness isn't it because if people don't know what you're talking about <laughs> then it's very difficult to convince them you know to help you raise money for that cause it is it is but um it's certainly something that we need to think more and long and hard about and i guess um you know, if anyone's got ideas, they want to contribute, please do get in touch. And uh, I guess info at myelopathy.org is the email address. And there's lots more information on the website or, of course, reach out through through Facebook and, and the team team on there. So um, 
Well, thanks, Michelle, for joining us today, albeit remotely and uh, having a small hiatus from homeschooling, which I'm sure you are absolutely thrilled by. In terms of what's coming up next month, we um, hear from Dr. Michael Failings. It's a slightly um, out of date interview now coming from from a late part of last year, but been a hiatus with the um, coronavirus. But it's still relevant. And he talks about his research career and, and what he's achieved in terms of um, progressing cervical myelopathy, it, really in that build up to his his appointment as the chair of our scientific advisory board and um, he will cover a little bit about that uh, top 10 research priority process. So it just remains to say a very big thank you to our guests Julia Carter and Helen Wood for joining us on today's podcast. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV. If you've got a question about myelopathy, we would love to get it answered on the podcast. Please tell us on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash myelopathy. That's also where you'll find a link to join our support group. There's lots of information also and support to be found on our website, myelopathy.org. The research priorities for myelopathy are now available at aospine.org forward slash recode and we'll be covering them in a special series of this podcast later this year. So why not subscribe on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. Until then, goodbye.